Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, a good morning to you all. It is David McLean here. Uh, Jan is away today, but I've got something quite exciting. I have uh, an interview that I pre-recorded with Jane Caro, where she uh, goes back to a nostalgic age. It's her memoir. Uh, She talks about uh, several uh, social issues of great importance, as well as some personal issues as well. So here is that interview with Jane Caro. Part nostalgia, part memoir, part social commentary. Jane Caro's playing life, love and the travails of living. So, Jane, welcome to 3CR. It's lovely to be here. Now, the nostalgia. In the 60s, we were freer to roam and have adventures without the anxious and controlling presence of grown-ups, a sort of lost bygone age in some ways. I think so, yeah. I think think as people have had fewer children, as... um, Mothers in particular have returned to the workforce. The anxiety about parenting has gone through the roof. My parents, as I recall, were not remotely anxious about their parenting. I don't think they even thought about their parenting. Um, if anything, I think they thought we owed them something rather than they, you know, them owning, owing us. And they, you know, we'd go off in the morning on weekends, and there was a bit of bushland near where I grew up, and my mates and I'd go off into the bush, and we didn't come home till it was either dark. Or we were hungry. And nobody said, where have you been? And mum would call out from the backyard, dinner's ready, or the back door, yeah, dinner's, dinner's ready. ready. Yeah. And you'd, you know, you'd rock it back from wherever it was you were. We used to roam for miles. And nobody made a fuss. Nobody thought we were going to be kidnapped by pedophiles or, you know, get into some terrible trouble. And, and by and large, we didn't. But those things existed then. I mean, there were children that were abducted in that era. How do you account for the change of... Well, I think it's, I think it's, as I said, I think it's fewer children. So people are, you know, absolutely concentrating laser beams of anxiety and expectation on these poor, precious objects, which isn't doing the parents any good, isn't doing the kids any good and isn't doing our education system any good. Uh, And the other thing I think is women still feel that it's kind of illicit for them to go back to work, particularly when they've had children. They feel that they still feel guilty and that they're not doing the right thing. So they're desperately trying to compensate by, you know, controlling every moment of their children's existence. And I think it's having the opposite of the desired effect. We know we've got a really high rate of anxiety amongst kids, really high rates of depression. Um, And I think it's partly, I mean, anxiety is catching. If you've got anxious parents, you're going to have anxious kids. Interesting. I mean, I was walking through a schoolyard in my teaching days with an old salt and he pointed to the bike shed and said 20 years ago that was full. Yeah. And we were looking at two bikes. Yeah. But then we used to ride to school as children without helmets through the traffic. We can't do that today. No, but we don't even, I mean, because of the obsession with school choice, pe- people are taking their kids, the, the local school is no longer good enough for anyone. Funnily enough, it's good for people who don't live in the local area. They'll ship their kids into the school you've rejected while you ship your kids into the um, school that they've rejected. And so what we've got is 
distances between schools are too great for kids to ride bikes, too dangerous for them to ride bikes, or even too great for them to walk. So as a result of that, we get more childhood obesity. Yay! We get um, gridlock traffic. Yay! And we get more air pollution. Hey, school choice. Is there anything it can't stuff up? And it's all the fault of education. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it's the fault of anxious parents. parents. Yeah. But then again, the flip side of this, you were run over. Yes. Now, tell us about that event and what the, your parents' reaction was. Well, that's right. I mean, everything swings and roundabouts, isn't it? In some ways, back in the 60s, there was really good benefits to the fact that our parents were very hands-off. But there were also quite severe risks. And indeed, I was on a school excursion when I was 10 years old. We were left unsupervised in the motel car park where we were all staying and we were playing a kids game called Stuck in the Mud where you crawled through somebody's legs to let them free again after they'd been tipped and uh, a car, very bizarrely drove through this bunch of kids who were playing a game. I was on the ground crawling through someone's legs to free them on my team. Um, We tripped over each other and the car went over the top of me because I was lying on the um, car park bitumen and uh, it didn't actually touch me. I was quite a small 10 year old. It didn't touch me and fortunately when it got to the curb Uh, The kids were all screaming. I could hear them. There's a girl underneath you. There's a girl underneath you. It backed off without changing the wheel, so it didn't actually touch me. But the whole incident was minimised, so I was. the teachers all said, oh, you're all right, you're all right. I think they felt guilty because they hadn't been supervising us and they should have been. Um, And that car driver just drove off into the Canberra night and was never called to account. And when I told my mother, she asked me when I came back from the excursion, oh, how'd you go? And I said, oh, you know, it was great, but oh, a weird thing happened. I got run over and she went, she made this terrible little noise kind of, oh, and I thought, oh, no, 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 it was minimal. I shouldn't, I shouldn't upset her. And she didn't go to the school. The teachers were never held to account. So basically I got the message as a 10-year-old that you could run over little girls and that was okay. But this sort of comes back to haunt you mm, a little does. later. And I want to sort of pick up on that topic towards the end sure, of this interview, sure. if I may, because then there's this other aspect that I mentioned in the introduction, the, the notion of social commentary. Now, some of it we've already touched on with education, mm. but also then this whole notion of abortion. And mm. if I may read, you were being interviewed on a radio uh, Television program? Radio Radio program. Mm. That evening in the studio, when the discussion about abortion started, Jensen was unequivocal in his condemnation. Brogdon was less definite but still negative about it as an option. When Richard asked for my opinion, I began by talking about the giant female silence around the topic and how it was a rare sexually active woman who hadn't wondered with white knuckles whether she would have would be faced with having to make a decision that wasn't abstract and theoretical as it was to men discussing the topic with me, but real, visceral and life-changing. When asked to respond to my remarks, Brogdon shifted a little in his position. Jensen did not move an inch. Abortion was wrong, it was murder, and so on and so forth. Glover turned back to me, and I knew I could not live with myself if I did not break the female silence I had named. I told them I had a fairly typical maternal history for a woman of my age. I was in my 40s by then, I think. I'd had two children, one miscarriage and an abortion. The female silence. How? Um, who's responsible for, for bringing abortion into the public domain, so to speak, to, to take away the stigma? Well, I think feminism has been doing a very good job for quite some time of bringing 
it out into the open. But women are still ashamed, you see, and shaming is such a powerful silencer. Um, it's important to note that the Jensen you mentioned in that uh, reading is was, is Archbishop Bishop Peter Jensen. Anglican. <laughs> Archbishop of Sydney at the time. Yes. And so that was a fairly, um, you know, confronting thing to do. But I think what I discovered as a result of deciding that come what may, I couldn't n- continue the female silence around it, I had to speak up, was that nothing bad happened. Absolutely nothing terrible happened as a result of that. And it taught me that shame is an illusion and it is used to shut people up. And the more we are silenced, the more the shame continues. When you speak up, the shame is dissipated. The shame actually loses its power. And so I think it's Really, really important. It's one of the greatest things that feminism has done is start to speak clearly and loudly about the real lived female experience about which we were incredibly silent. Back in the 60s, to go back to our initial stuff, I remember periods were simply not mentioned at all. And in fact, there were ads in magazines which featured beautiful women wearing incredibly exquisite and ornate ball gowns. And at the bottom in small type, it said Modest. Because and Modest, if you're in the know, was a pad, a, a sanitary pad, but it was all so shameful that you, they couldn't even make the ad clear. So before I got my periods, I remember asking my mother, "What are these ads for? Is Modest the dress?" And she went, "No, it's a sanitary napkin." You know <laughs> how you'd know. But I, well, I can remember when I first went to university, we got um, a open open day or uh, indoctrination week mm. kit, oh, yes. and it had everything in it: a, a condom, uh, sanitary pads, all sorts of things, things we hadn't seen. Mm. Um, you know, chemists put them in brown paper wrappers and sealed them, and then uh, gave them to you, sort of thing. Uh, if you had to go into a chemist for something, but you didn't talk about them back then. No, shame, you see. Mm. The great silencer. And what it does is it makes people think that this thing only happens to awful, bad, peculiar people like them. And, of course, what happens when you get the shame out of it is, oh, no, it's common. It's common. And basically the reaction is from the public mm. is, is sort of, oh, well, you know, move on sort move of thing. On. <laughs> yes, I've had two or who cares or I loved what you said about apricot chicken and the because we were also asked about favourite recipes from the 60s and, in fact, absolutely nothing bad occurred. But then, I mean, put it in the context of what's happening today. We've just had somebody refused a visa. Yes. How do we keep getting this um, echo of it or this strain of fundamentalism coming through? What's causing that? Well, I think it's about power and control, actually. I don't, I don't actually think... It's about uh, real uh, care for the unborn uh, because they're the same people seem to have absolutely no care for the born. Uh, but I think it's really about a fear of sexuality. It's a, it's a desire to keep that shame and it's a desire to use children, which I find really bizarre, as a punishment. There's a fear that if women can have sex willy-nilly, so to speak, without consequences, then, you know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. They lose control of women because I think that the control of women's sexuality and fertility has been very, very important to patriarchy and patriarchal religions in particular uh, for millennia. And the idea of losing that control means in a way they lose their raison d'etre, they lose their reason for being. And so... 
That's the real push. It is to control women. And it is the weirdest thing in the world to me to use the idea of a baby as a punishment. You have to have that baby, girl, because you opened your legs. On that note, we're going to move to another topic. (laughs) And I'm speaking with Jane Caro, whose memoir came out recently called Plain Speaking Jane. You are listening to Published or Not on 3CR. And as indicated on that pre-record, we're moving to another topic. So let's continue with that interview with Jane Caro. (laughs) I'm a poor mere male here. Education is the mm. other uh, bet noir that you have and the uh, attitude towards public education mm. um, and the um, the attitude towards uh, high schools. It wasn't the only time I was warned off Mossman High because of a supposed but completely imaginary drug problem. Mm. An ethicist, whom I will kindly not name, was meeting with me about another issue entirely. We were both mothers of similarly aged children living on the Lower North Shore. After a while, for reasons I no longer recall, we got around to talking about schools. Of course, this supposedly super-ethical person, well, she had a piece of paper to prove it, said in hushed conspiratorial tones, Mossman, I has a terrible heroin problem. How do you know that? Everyone in the area knows that. Really? My daughters attend Mossman High. I had the satisfaction of seeing all the blood drain from her face. Our attitude towards high schools, public education, what's going on? We, well, you see, if you're, in my view, silly enough to pay fees for something that you can get for nothing, you have to justify it by saying that the school that would charge you no or minimal fees is rubbish because otherwise what kind of an idiot are you? So there's an awful lot of self-justifying that goes on by parents who choose fee-charging schools. And tragically, I, look, if you want to choose a fee-charging school, you go right ahead. But could I please, on bended knees, beg you not to feel therefore compelled to put down or pass on scuttlebutt about the local public school? It is incredibly damaging to that school. It is incredibly damaging to the students who attend it. And it is incredibly damaging to public education education as a whole. And public education is what makes democracy. There's been private education for thousands of years. It's public education that is revolutionary and that says every child in a society is entitled to an education no matter who their parents are. No child should have to depend on charity to get an education. That is a right in a civilised society. So by all means, choose to pay fees if you want to. But if you start spreading rubbish or putting down the local public school, I will be down your throat because it is so destructive and you are doing it to make yourself feel better. Well, stop it. And there are just as many problems with uh, drugs and antisocial behaviour in private schools, and they actually have more access to money. Um, and Indeed. If you were a drug dealer, for example, I don't know about your business plan, but if I was a drug dealer, I'd think to myself, well, I could stand on the corner outside the school where they charge no fees, or I could stand on the corner outside the school where they charge, hey, some of them are now charging $25,000 a year plus. I don't know about you, but I know which corner I'd be standing on. So this idea that somehow drugs are more rampant, crimes more rampant, bad kids are more rampant is a is a marketing perception. And perhaps because I spent so long in advertising, writing uh, to marketing briefs, perhaps that's why I don't believe most of the nonsense that mm. is spouted about the local public school, public education in particular. Uh, And I get angry because I think it has a cumulative destructive effect 
on confidence in our public education system, and that is incredibly damaging. But one of the problems with um, is is economic because if we fund the uh, private schools, um, there's um, less money we have to fork out because we're only paying the private schools on a pro rata basis. So we are having to spend less in our budget, and all we want to balance the budget. So let's. Uh, encourage private education, less money going out of the coffers. Uh, that's the rationalisation. There's actually quite a lot of evidence starting to emerge that shows that that's not true. <clears throat> and if you think about it, that makes sense because what we do in Australia for school choice um, is we do we build an awful lot of schools. So we spend a lot of money on bricks and mortar because if you're going to have choice, you've got to have lots of schools to choose from. We don't spend nearly as much on actual teaching and learning and what goes on in the classroom. So, in fact, we're actually shortchanging all kids by building more schools instead of worrying about the programs and the things that are going on in the classroom and supporting teachers and paying them better and giving them more resources and more support. So, first of all, it's a false, that's a false premise. The other thing is there's now figures emerging, certainly in New South Wales, to show that probably, I think it's 2016, Catholic schools in New South Wales will be receiving as much per student as public schools. So the old argument that it saved the government money falls apart when that happens. Uh, they're just getting the same funding as the public school kids because what we've done in the past is we've compared the whole cohort of private school kids and the whole co cohort of public school kids. What two researchers have done is they've broken out kids into like with like. So they've looked at socioeconomic status and they've looked at how much funding goes to each kid according to their socioeconomic status. When you do that, you find the funding is the same. So we're not actually saving money. If those kids went back into the public system, they would receive the same amount of subsidy as they do in the Catholic system by 2016 is the latest figures. So all these arguments are falling apart. What we're doing is funding, publicly funding status seeking. Um, and also, unfortunately, particularly with the very wealthy schools, we are subsidising what I call, in fact, John Kay from the Greens um, coined this, um, a kind of arms race amongst highly privileged schools where they have to offer more and more luxurious facilities to attract the sorts of parents who can pay those kind of fees. There's quite a scandal in New South Wales and Sydney at the moment about one school which wants to put in a $63 million um, development. And these schools get public subsidies. Uh, it's just extraordinary. And we keep saying, how can we cut spending? Well, there's a place you could cut spending tomorrow and make no difference to the kids. And, yes, in terms of the educational outcome. None, none. Well, we already know that, you know, there are kids in public schools all over Australia, particularly middle-class public schools, that do extremely well with vastly less money spent on their education, something like a third as much. And then there are these kids in these very luxurious schools with extraordinary amounts of money. And their results are no better and do not go up. So what are we spending it on? Worse, when they go to university... We know that kids from public comprehensive schools do better at university than both their private school and their selective school peers. Now, people don't know why this is, but here's my little idea. It's much easier to go from one publicly funded, uh, pu underfunded pub public institution to another underfunded public institution. Imagine what it must be like to leave the gilded halls of some of these 
extraordinarily luxurious schools and walk into your average university lecture. No wonder they're knocked sideways, these poor kids. But it's also the attitude because they're spoon-fed mm. in the private schools. You've got to pass. You've got to have a, a pass rate, etc., and the numbers. Well, it's a marketing tool. And Yes, um, whereas a lot of those from public schools have learnt more independence, basically. Well, they've learnt how to w- work and learn and achieve in a classroom where some of the kids are disruptive. You know, they've learnt how to actually discipline and, and concentrate on their own. I mean, I often say to parents who say, oh, well, it's a very disruptive classroom. I say, well, when they go to work, are you going to find a boss for them that's going to nurture their special and individual, you know, um, potential? And are you going to be able to discipline all their colleagues, never to be disruptive or noisy? The average open plan office is a pretty rambunctious place these days. But, oh, you'd know better about how to, you know, make sure your child is able to cope. We now have a phenomenon, in fact, and it's been marked in America, where parents are marching into bosses of their children when the child gets a negative review, negative performance review at work. Can you imagine? Extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah. We will move on, otherwise we'll be here all day. There's the personal element, and there are a lot of personal uh, things you talk about, um, your childbirth and yes, marriage yes. and all oh, of these yeah, sort of things. Yeah, I'm but pretty the, straight about it. <laughs> the, the one actually that stands out for me is um, what I yearned for was some understanding of what I was going through, but it took me 10 long years to discover that I suffered from an obsessive anxiety neurosis. Mm. You get very personal on this level of anxiety, which goes back in some ways to when you were run over yes, and all of these things. Yes, that was one of the events. And the other irony is you're outspoken, you're forthcoming, and yet this anxiety is underlying there. Mm. Talk to that, Jane. I think that's often the way anxiety works. Um, a lot of people who appear very confident um, would surprise you with um, the emotional cost that sometimes that comes at. And it's also that we're such complicated people, human beings. So we might be really confident in one area, but still incredibly anxious in another. So I was always outwardly uh, confident. Now it's much more um, all the way through. But when I was young, no, I struggled very hard with anxiety. There were a number of precipitating events, none none of them particularly outrageous apart from the being run over, which was bizarre more necessarily than anything else. But there was a bit of OCD in my family, so I think I had a genetic predisposition. And I think that I uh, was trying very, very hard to live up to people's expectations, to my own expectations. I was trying very hard to find a way to fit in. And I wasn't actually the very outspokenness didn't help because particularly in the 60s and 70s, but I think it continues today, we judge good girls. What do we mean by a good girl? We mean a compliant girl. We mean a girl who defers, who doesn't push herself forward, is modest, tidy, neat, helps others, is a facilitator for other people. That's really what we think of as a good girl. And I was never much good at that. I was, you know, in your face, argumentative, had strong opinions. And I think I got a sense from the world that I was not a good girl. Well, where do you go if you're not a good girl? You must be a bad girl. And I think that was part of the problem. And we know that one in three women suffers from anxiety. And we know that young women in particular are very susceptible to anxiety. And I think it is this awful nexus where you're brought up to please other people, to seek approval very strongly, but there's no way to get approval. There's no right way to be as a girl. If you think about 
for example, the way we treat young, famous young women. We expect them to be beautiful and sexy and enticing and tantalising. But then when they are, we have carte blanche to slap them for it and tell them they're terrible. So we, we push them in one direction, then we punish them for the very same thing that we've been encouraging them to do. And we do that to women a lot. And I think that is one of the reasons that a lot of women feel really anxious all the time because they're waiting for the slap that they know will come. I now no longer care about the slap. You can go ahead and slap me all you like. It bounces off these days because I don't care whether you approve of me. But that took a very, very long time to uh, find my way there. It took real danger to change out fa- chase out fantasy danger and it also took many years of counselling and hard thinking and hard work. I've been talking to Bad Jane, Plain (laughs) Jane, about her book, Plain Speaking Jane. We can, you get to have a a look back at the 60s, you get to look at some of the social issues that are uh, hitting us today, and you get an insight into Jane Caro. So, Jane, thank you very much for coming in today. My pleasure. I should have said also, it's a Pan Macmillan release. (laughs)